0: In uh, September 1991, the sword fishing boat, the Andrea Gale, had just made it back to port after a fishing expo- uh, b- expedition. Um, and they had not caught very much fish. In fact, it was a bad fishing um, trip. And, and so they decide to, to go back out for one last trip late in the fishing season. Their uh, port was Gloucester Massachusetts, as they decide to go back out to try their hand at fishing one more time. Um, they were desperate for money. And so they go past their usual fishing spot to a place called the Flemish Cap. <clears throat> and they land the, uh, the catch of a lifetime. And they're bringing in their fish and, and things are going so well. But at the height of their fishing, the ice uh, or the refrigerator goes out. And they recognized that if, if they don't get back to port, they're going to lose all this fish because the refrigerator was what was preserving the fish. And so they determined to go back to port, though they're 500 miles out. But there's one problem. Between them and the port are two storms and a hurricane who are converging to make one massive storm. So you've got two storms and a hurricane who are coming together to really um, combine to be the perfect storm, if you will. In fact, there was a book written on this that I read, a movie made out of this, The Perfect Storm. Well, this crew uh, was faced with a decision. We either go through this storm and preserve our fish, or we run from the storm and we lose our fish. Well, they underestimated the storm despite warnings from other boats, and weather authorities, and they determined to go through that storm. Well, uh, as they make their way into this perfect storm, 40-foot waves are crashing against the boat. Now, that's four stories. Think about that. 40-foot waves are crashing against the boat, and they lose two of their crew who just fall overboard. At this point, they determine they're going to turn around and get out of this storm, but it was too late. Uh, It was capsized. And the ship and crew were never found. Um, they didn't heed the warnings in time. Jesus, in this Olivet discourse, is giving us a warning. In fact, there's really a twofold purpose to this discourse. First, to show us, to warn us that judgment is coming, and to warn us why judgment is coming. Now, we have to look at this through two lenses. There's a judgment that's coming in the first century on Jerusalem, but that's kind of like a paradigm, a a coming attraction, if you will, of the coming judgment that awaits when Christ returns at the end of the age. And so we have to look at this with a dual reference, if you will. But judgment is coming, and he is telling us why judgment is coming, because we uh, have rejected the time of his visitation through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. But he's also speaking... To His disciples. Uh, he is speaking to the disciples to prepare them for the birth pains that precede the judgment, to prepare them to persevere through the birth pains that precede the judgment. And secondly, so that they will be uh, prepared to stand before the son of man when he returns. And when he returns, he will come not just as savior, he will come as judge. Indeed, their redemption is drawing near and the ground of it would be achieved in just a couple of days when Jesus would die on the cross, taking the wrath of God for sinners. But they must embrace him. They must persevere in faith in Jesus Christ. And so he finishes the discourse today and we see a parable a promise, and a plea. It breaks down nicely. A parable, a promise, and a plea. He desires that His disciples will be ready. He desires that His disciples be ready when the birth pains come and when the judgment comes in the end. Because He understands that the life of faith isn't kind of like a running down the hill in a neutral uh, mode. It is, as Luke 16 says... Uh, a A kind of faith where you force your way into the kingdom luke sixteen sixteen it 's not works, but it 's an act of desperation as you recognize your only hope is the messiah. Now that brings us to the parable in verses twenty nine to thirty two he 's already spoken about his coming at the end of the age. The Son of man will come with, uh, with power and great glory in verse twenty seven And then he tells them a parable. It says in verse 29, he says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, that is the birth pains leading up to uh, the judgment, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Well, the parable is quite clear, isn't it? One of the clear signs of approaching summer uh, is you've got springtime budding of the trees. Um, And and summer here represents the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? We've talked about that a great deal, but maybe some of you are new. It's important that we understand the kingdom of God because it is where everything is headed. It is ultimate reality. It is the story of the Bible. If you could break down the Bible into one theme, it's the coming of the kingdom of God. What is it? Well, it's the establishment of God's saving reign. Okay? Now, he has a sovereign reign that's eternal. Okay? He, He sovereignly reigns over unbelievers even now, though they don't recognize it. Okay? But this is the establishment of his saving reign, his covenantal presence, and his authority over redeemed believers through his Messiah, through his king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this particular uh, verse is a clear example of the not yet of the kingdom. He says, you know that the kingdom of God is near. It's not talking about proximity geographically. It's talking about with regard to time. The kingdom of God is coming and it will be near, but it's not here. And yet, if you look over in chapter 17... In verse uh, 21, he says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so the kingdom is already, but not yet. We have to understand that. Let me just give you a clear example of that. For the believer, the sting of death, okay, has been destroyed. It has been crushed underneath the feet of Jesus. Already it has been crushed. And yet death is still present, isn't it? We had to bury Kaywood's Wood's two brothers this week. Death is very present, all right? But the sting of death has been removed for the believer. That's the already of the kingdom. One day, the presence of death will be removed. That's the not yet of the kingdom. And so we have to understand the kingdom is already, but not yet. And so here he's referring to the not yet of the kingdom. And we have to keep that in tension. So whenever we see these birth pains, okay... And the birth pains intensify, don't they? Heather's had four children. She had four C-sections. And uh, I, I tell you, I saw her go through labor pains and then have to have a C-section. It was the worst of both worlds. And, and, and as the baby is coming closer to birth, the birth pains intensify, okay? And these birth pains are intensifying as we come nearer to the end. And we see them every week, don't we? I mean, you've got Russia invading countries. You have a a 777 that just disappeared off the face of the planet. And they certainly think now that it's some kind of uh, shenanigans going on there. Uh, This week, Baptist Press released on Friday uh, a story about a woman uh, who's in Somalia who is a Christian, and she and her cousin were beheaded in front of her two young daughters, because she is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, her daughters are crying out to that they would save her their, their mother. Uh, the birth pains are everywhere, and he says, uh, "Whenever we see these birth pains, know that the end is coming. This when the Son of Man will return in glory and power and set things right. When he comes, he's going to fix the broken things." Okay. All the things that we struggle with today, sin, the sentence of death, stress, uh, strife, and, and all of these things are going to be placed underneath the feet of Christ, the sadness that we experience. Now, the parable here is simple, but that brings us to the most comp- one of the most complicated verses in all the scriptures, verse 32. He says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away, until all has taken place. Now, many skeptics have pointed to this text and say, see, clearly Jesus was wrong. Uh, This generation did pass away, and he did not return, all right? And so Jesus is clearly wrong. Uh, He's inaccurate here. Um, But is that really what he's saying? I mean, think about this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this. And they record it decades after he spoke these words. And Jesus had not returned when they recorded them. So obviously, they didn't think he was wrong or they would not have recorded them. So that cannot be what he's referring to here. Um, I believe... All here, the word all in verse 32. We could spend a lot of time on this, but we don't have time. He says, we will not pass away until all has taken place. I believe the all here does not refer to his return, but to all the things leading up to the fall of Jerusalem and all the things leading up to his return. So there's a kind of a dual fulfillment here in light of uh, the already not yet of the kingdom. So the fall of Jerusalem... And then the coming judgment when Christ returns. In fact, Luke clearly believes that Jesus' words are trustworthy. In fact, that brings us to the promise which we find in verse 33. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass. Verse 33, heaven and earth will pass. All right, this generation will not pass, but heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. Now, I don't think he's saying there that, uh, that the earth is going to be completely wiped off the face of the, of the universe. He's going to renew the planet, okay? This is just a, a metaphor. He's going to come and, and remove the curse off of uh, creation when he returns. That's not what he's referring to, but the emphasis is on his words. He says, my words will not pass away. Um, it's not uh, what Jesus, just what says Jesus says about the end that he's referring to here. He's, he's referring to every word um, that he gives us. And I think this is one of the great claims to um, his deity because only God can say this. My words will not pass away. In fact, I think he's referencing, he's alluding to Isaiah 40 verse 8 where it says the grass withers and the f- a flower fades away, but the word of our God will stand, endure forever. Isaiah is referring to Yahweh. And in this passage, Jesus is referring to himself. His word will not endure. I think we or it will endure. I think we find our hope here. I think this is where our hope is found. It's found in the enduring words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what are the words of Christ? Some people think it's just the red letters in your Bible. Um, Some people believe that the red letters are more accurate and more true than the black letters. Let me just tell you, the Bible is the word of Christ. Uh, The Old Testament prepares us for the coming Messiah, and the New Testament speaks to the implications now that he has come. But let's just relegate it real quickly to the red letters. What does Jesus speak to us uh, about his word. Well, um, for instance, in a, uh, Matthew chapter 5, in chapter 5, verse 20, he says, he gives us the standard, okay, for standing before him. He says, Whoever, um, whoever's righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the, the Pharisees and the scribes will not inherit the kingdom. Well, that's a pretty remarkable statement when you consider that the scribes and the Pharisees, naturally speaking, were the most righteous of people in the face of the world. And then he says in Matthew five forty eight, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, think about that. Jesus is telling us that the standard to stand before God is perfection. Now, that is a, that's a quite difficult standard if you think about it. It's not some kind of relative righteousness. It's a perfect righteousness. And that's really bad news for all of us, isn't it? Because even the most moral and righteous among us have to concede there's at least faults in our life, right? There's, there's sins in our life. Well, that brings us to the good news that Jesus speaks. He says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And so we have these glorious promises. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, he shall live. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but through me. But you can come to the Father through me. Those are the words of Christ that he gives us, preparing us for that day. And I think how tragic it is, though, how historically there has been this assault on the very words of Christ. Famously, uh, maybe you've heard the story of Voltaire. Voltaire was the 18th century uh, French philosopher. And he famously predicted that within 50 years, no one would remember Jesus' name. Okay? Well, what's remarkable is 50 years to the date, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his home after he had died, and they were publishing thousands of Bibles in the French language every day from the former home of Voltaire. That is a reminder to us that his words will never pass away. And in every one of those Bibles that were being published from Voltaire's former home, where the words, my words will not pass away. It is tragic that you have all of these skeptics. But I think what's even more tragic, perhaps, are the countless professing believers who ignore his word. You have those who just outright assault it. But how about the countless believers who just ignore it? They're more familiar with their hobby magazines. Uh, They're more familiar with People magazine, TV Guide, um, Facebook updates, Twitter updates. Uh, They're much more familiar with these things than they are the word of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's an overstatement? And I'm just asking this. I'm not even answering the question. I'll ask it for you. Do you think it's an overstatement to say... That ignoring Jesus' word, the word of Christ, the word of God, is a sign of indifference? Do you think that ignoring his word is a sign of indifference towards God? Well, I'm here, aren't I? I'm here at church on Sunday morning. No, I'm talking about most of your life, which is Monday to Saturday. You don't open the scriptures you don't study them, is that a sign of indifference? And if it's indifference, is it a sign of lovelessness? It's a very important question we have to ask ourselves. Think about this. If you if you perceive yourself as really broken, and let me just tell you, we're all broken. We are utterly broken and we cannot fix ourselves. We cannot put ourselves together again. If you perceive yourselves... As truly broken. And the word of God is a necessary grace. To address your brokenness. And it is. It's a necessary grace. Don't you think if you perceived yourself as broken. And the Bible, the word of God, the word of Christ. Is a necessary grace to fix that brokenness. Don't you think you would do what it took. To learn it. To study it. To meditate on it. Friday night, my ear was broken. I got home from the office, and I told Heather my left ear. I felt like I was underwater, and uh, I was imbalanced. In fact, I, I still feel it somewhat today, as you can tell by the way I'm speaking, and, and, and I told Heather, I said, look, I've got to get to the ER, and I don't like going to the ER on a Friday night, but I did. I went to, actually, it was an a emergency care, urgent care, and I went in there, and uh, my ear was broken, and, and when when you 're broken you 're going to go to the source that 's going to fix it okay and I did I went and sat and i what 's interesting about these things is jeff i don 't know you, you can answer this as a physician you you don 't feel well, and then they give you twenty forms to fill out uh, that 's the last thing you do i mean um, but I got there i was I was willing to do what it took to fix the brokenness, okay. Well, the the Bible clearly is a means of grace to fix our brokenness, and we are all broken. Jesus says His Word will endure forever. Now, in light of this enduring Word that He has given us, um, verses 34 to 36 is a sobering plea. It's a sobering warning, if you will. So we've seen the parable and the promise of His Word. In light of that, let's look at the plea. Look in verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. That day. What day? It's the day of judgment. For the believer, it will be the day of vindication. Okay? But it is the day of judgment. Now, as a believer, you've already received your verdict. All right? That's what it means to be justified. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are united to him, okay? Which means everything that he has achieved becomes true of you. Jesus Christ was the obedient son who obeyed the law. You believe on the Lord Jesus and you now have the identity of the obedient son. Jesus Christ died on the cross, taking the wrath of God in his person. Your sins have now been paid for in the Son. Jesus was raised from the grave for for justification. And now you have the verdict of justification. You, You have been justified, okay? So in the day of judgment, you're going to hear what has already been communicated to you, justified. But a positive verdict, all right, a positive verdict always goes public. If you have been truly sanctified, you cannot divorce that with sanctification. Sanctification is a necessary reality for those whose sins have been forgiven. And sanctification is just another way of saying persevering in grace, being conformed to the likeness of Christ. And one of the crucial means by which we persevere in grace is biblical admonition. That's why we need preaching. That's why we need teaching. That's why we need personal Bible study. And this alone is sufficient reason why we can't simply lukewarmly drift through life without constantly thinking about that day when Christ returns in glory and power many people will not be ready at all. And that's why he says in verse thirty-four, to disciples. He's saying this not to the pagans. He's saying this to the disciples. One, by the way, who will deny him very shortly. We'll see that next week. He says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. And he gives us three things that are possible even for the professing uh, believer. The first thing he says, he says, watch yourself lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation. Now, I had to look that word up this week. I, I didn't know what dissipation was. Maybe you do. Maybe your vocabulary is larger than mine. I looked it up in the original language and then I determined that this was the best translation In the original language, and then I went to the American Heritage Dictionary uh, to see how they define it, and here is what dissipation is Um, dissipation is this idea of spending or expending wastefully, all right? Um, It's to squander and to exhaust. So what are we squandering and exhausting when we're enslaved to dissipation? Your lives. You've been entrusted with a life. You've been entrusted with time. You've been entrusted with talents and abilities and resources. And he says, beware lest your hearts be weighed down by dissipation. Now he's speaking to the disciples. And if he needs to say this to the disciples, how much more do we need to hear this? Why? Why? Because we have competing affections, don't we? We have uh, competing affections, affections that have the real potential of quenching our thirst for God. Now, here's the question. How do you detect dissipation? How do you detect it in your life? First of all, I was thinking about this. uh, When desire, and I'm just thinking about myself here, okay? So I'm not pointing this at anyone but me. Um, This is how I detect dissipation in my own life. When desire and expectation about something, okay, in the created order, so consumes me that my uh, treasuring of God, my enjoyment in God, is stymied by anxiety or discontentment or fear or... Discouragement. That's dissipation. All right? Uh, A second, I think, area or second symptom of this is when our lives, when my life is so filled with recreation and leisure that I become dull towards worship. I become dull towards mission. I read about the Great Commission. I read about the nations knowing the name of God and I'm dull to it. It doesn't excite me. Now, prayerfully, I am in tune enough with the Spirit to recognize that and repent of it. But that tells me that I am walking in dissipation. Or, when we find ourselves more interested in learning and investing in our hobbies than we are in learning the word of God. That is dissipation. He says dissipation will weigh you down. It will weigh your heart down. And and if it continues to weigh your heart down, you may end up apostate. He's going to give us an example next time with Judas of what can happen with a person who does not watch their hearts for dissipation. And that's why I think Ryle is not overstating it when he asserts we're to live on our guard like men in an enemy's country. We're to remember that evil is about us and near us and in us. And that we have to contend daily with a treacherous heart. An ensnaring world and a busy devil. And so we live on guard by watching. Lest our hearts be weighed down by competing affections. And when we give in to these competing affections, when we feed them... That's dissipation. And it does not stay stagnant. It can lead to drunkenness. Now, not all dissipation leads to drunkenness. But drunkenness is always evidence of dissipation. He says, watch yourselves. Lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Um, I'm reading a book by the about the uh, 1980s... Uh, Los Angeles Lakers. It's called Showtime. And one of the great players they had on that early team with Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a guy named Spencer Haywood. He was an all-pro. And all of a sudden, uh, his wife, who was a model, began to tour, and he was left there bored. And overnight, he became a, a crack addict. Right there in the middle of the season. Had never tried it, and just all of a sudden became a crack addict. And he's, he's now clean, but here was his reason for becoming a, a crack addict. He was bored. He was bored. Here, here's a guy who's a Los Angeles Laker. He's on one of the great teams in history. Has all this money, has, has the mansion in Bel Air. He has, you know, the, the, the Maserati. He, he has it all, and he's bored, okay? In other words, dissipation does not satisfy, all right? And it led to crack addiction. It's just interesting that he is warning Christians here about drunkenness. And I think that uh, dissipation and drunkenness are an example of a broader temptation to fill our lives with intoxicating idols that in the end will not satisfy. Spencer Haywood is a case in point. Idols that quench our thirst for God. Well, there's a third warning. Notice this. He says... Your heart can also be weighed down by the cares of this life. In other words, distraction. Dissipation, drunkenness, and distraction. Now, the cares of this life aren't necessarily bad things. It could be family issues, all right? It could be work-related things. It can be good things, important things. But he says if you're weighed down by these things, you're under the dominion of these things. He said, watch yourself. In fact, in chapter 8... Verses 13 and 14, uh, Jesus shows us that uh, these things can choke God's word so that it becomes unfruitful in your life. And he says, don't be caught unaware. The day is approaching. He says it will come like a trap. That's one of the most fearful words in the New Testament. That day is going to come like a trap. What does that mean? When it happens, there's nothing you can do about it, all right? It's like the rich fool. When it happens in chapter 12, it's going to happen. It's like the days of Noah, Luke 17. When it happens, it happens like a trap. There's nothing you can do about it. Unless we relegate this to the first century, look with me in verse 35. He says, it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. That applies to you. All means all here. It will come upon all that day, the day of the Lord, when the Son of Man comes to judge the world. It will come on the whole world. A day foreshadowed by the fall of Jerusalem. But a day that we're all going to experience. Hence, verse 36, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all those things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What does it mean to stay awake? Well, it means to uh, persevere, persist in the treasuring of Christ, come what may. That's what perseverance is. It's persisting in the treasuring of Christ, come what may. Because your affections rule your life. What you love, what you treasure rules your life. And so to stay awake, to be sobered, is to persist in the treasuring of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this is made possible by prayer. Stay awake, praying that you may have strength to escape. Literally, you could translate this stay awake by praying. Stay awake by praying. One of the most helpful things that I've seen in this regard, and it has tremendously helped me, I want to offer it to you this morning, is from John Piper. John Piper begins every day with this prayer. He says, In light of what God has done for us in Jesus, okay, we owe Him our lives. Okay? We owe Him everything. Not in order to to get favor from Him. You already have it. It's just your... As Romans 12 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You owe God everything for what he has done for you in saving you from your sins, in saving you from the wrath of God, in saving you from hell, okay? And so these are IOUs, and it's a prayer that he prays. It's an acronym. And the, the first letter of this acronym is I. And he prays this in Psalm 119, verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. He begins his time every day with this prayer as he's opening up the scriptures, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Every day he begins with that prayer. What does he mean by that? Well, the first thing my soul needs every day is to be inclined back towards God because it's not naturally inclined towards God. It's naturally inclined towards me, okay? It's naturally inclined toward all the anxieties, the cares of life, things that make me dissipated, if you will. And so he begins every day with this cry, Incline my heart towards you, O God. Our hearts need to be inclined, re-inclined every day. Out of that, he prays the O. Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things from your law. Now that my heart is inclined towards you, God, Open my eyes to behold your glory. I'm going to stare at your glory until it hits me. Open my eyes to your worth that I may treasure you. Open my eyes to who you are, what you have done for me through your son Jesus Christ. The you out of that, Psalm 86 verse 11, unite my heart to fear your name. Why would we have to pray? That God would unite our hearts. Because our hearts are sinfully fragmented. As believers there's a part of our hearts that want to worship him. That seek to treasure him. But there's other parts of our heart. That are in rebellion to him still aren't there. There are places in my heart. That marvel at God. And there are parts of my heart that don't. And so you're praying unite my heart. What I long for is a united heart where all the parts of my heart say a joyful yes to God. And then out of that, the S. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Psalm 90 verse 14. Satisfy us, O Lord. Praying there that our hearts would be satisfied with God and not with the world. Do you know why you're so easily dissipated? It's because you're not satisfied in God. You're not treasuring God. So you think there's something out there in the created order that's going to do it for you. And so you begin each day, God, satisfy me with you. Satisfy my heart with your glory, with your worth, your beauty. You see, what this prayer is doing, it's feeding your affection for God. You don't remove dissipation. You don't just say, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be enthralled with these earthly things anymore. By the, an act of my will, I'm not going to be enthralled by these things. No, you don't remove it, you replace it with a greater affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. And we have to do war in this. We have to wake up every day and do war. We have to cry out, God, confessing, I am not inclined towards you. My eyes and my heart are not open to your glory. My heart is fragmented. It's not united to fear your name. I'm not satisfied in you. I'm satisfied in other things. This is serious business. Jesus says you must do these things. Lest your heart be weighed down. And notice what he says. Stay awake. Praying that you may have strength. To escape all these things. That are going to take place. And to stand before the son of man. He seems to be saying here. That prayer is prerequisite. To being able to withstand these things. And my concern is. Is that prayer is not the heartbeat. For most professing believers. You know. It's according to what world you're in. If you're in a seminary world. The heartbeat is often theology. So you have people who can parse. You know. All the theological terms. But their hearts are not inclined towards God. It's just another means. Of making a name for themselves. As evidenced by their prayerlessness. And then in. Oftentimes in the local Southern Baptist church, you have people who are very involved in work and activity and service. But to get them to pray is like pulling teeth. And he seems to be saying here that the way you will persevere when these birth pains come is on your knees. On your knees in doxological desperation. So that you will be able to stand one day before the Son of Man. Well, I thought you just said, uh, Brian, that uh, if you're a believer, you've already received the verdict. Yes, you have. But the evidence, the evidence that you have received a positive verdict is that you now worship Him. You have a new love. And when you're able to stand before Him, this is the picture of a law court. You're standing before the judge. Who is the judge? The Son of Man. The Lord Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead in the last day. And you will hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. Or you will hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Yes, the Bible does teach God preserves his own. I absolutely believe the Bible teaches that. You cannot lose your salvation. God preserves his own. But the Bible also teaches that... He preserves them through the appointed means He has given us. And that the Holy Spirit applies those means to our hearts. And one of the clear means that He has given us in this text is prayer. Prayer is the means. Now, there are many other means. We've seen the, the fact that Jesus promises things and He, he warns us of things. But one of the central means here is prayer. Jesus is saying a prayerless believer will not be able to stand in the end. So this is a fearful warning to us. Yes, it's an encouragement. It's an encouragement because Jesus promised his provision and his presence. He promises that the kingdom will come. And no matter how difficult our circumstances are, the kingdom is ultimate reality. It is the final word. But the Bible also here teaches that we must persevere on our knees let's pray Father